Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future Ready Podcast, where we explore how to build future-ready organizations in a new, never normal. My name is Arne Kötting, founder of Cozin and your host. We are still in our first season, where we are going deep on the topic of transformation and innovation. Managing change is always a very personal matter. If we boil it down, it is always about how to get either myself or another person to move from behavior A to behavior B. Change is possible and sustainable if the perceived appeal of the new is more sexy than the perceived level of risk to let go of the old. To make it very tangible, think of the mother of all New Year's resolutions. If the vision of you without that extra four kilos is more appealing than the perceived hassle of driving to the gym, you have a good chance to actually make it happen. Okay, I admit things in organizations are a little bit more nuanced, but you get my point. One of the hot topics when it comes to the question of how to change entire organizations is an emerging discipline called behavioral science. We all know that humans often make highly irrational decisions, of course only the others. But it turns out that there are predictable patterns in our irrationality. And that's what behavioral scientists are interested in. Today I am delighted to be joined by Antoine Ferrer, Global Head Behavioral and Data Science at Novartis. He will shed more light on the possibilities and limitations of behavioral science in the context of transformations. Prior to his work at Novartis, he was behavioral science director at the consultancy Influence at Work in London. Antoine has more than a decade of experience in change management and program management gained at Capgemini and Syngenta in Switzerland. He holds a Master of Science in Behavioral Science from the London School of Economics. Antoine, it is a pleasure to have you on the Future Ready podcast. Happy to be here, Arnie. Great. Antoine, tell us a little bit about your professional story. What motivated you to become a behavioral scientist after your career uh, in change management? Yeah, thanks. So, um, yeah, as you've uh, alluded to, Arnie, I think, you know, uh, my, my career so far, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not finished yet. Um, it is not one of a straight line, uh, but rather, I guess, like a lot of us, a bit of a more bunch of zigzags, some of them a bit more random, but um, I guess there's still a sort of a red thread through that. But yes, I, I kind of started, my background is, is not behavioral science, although I call myself a behavioral scientist, no, not one by trade, as people say. Um, I had pretty much no idea what I wanted to do, so I did a business school back in the days because, you know, business, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can do sure. stuff. Uh, and in there, I wasn't sure what to do, so I did consulting because then you know, then you can consult. You can do business. everything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, very much spent the first ten years of my career being the most generic guy I could be, so I could have as many choices as I could. But of course, there's a limitation with this strategy, which is at right. some point you compete with people that are like you, but more specialized. And so, I always had this interest, both for. Um, early on, let's say economics or the sort of the social policy, the sort of impact kind of kind of driven kind of kind of science there in the real world on the mm -hmm. one hand, and also psychology on the other hand. Um, although at the time I thought that you know if you do a degree on psychology, uh, then you become 
a psychologist, as in clinical psychologist, okay. or a, a professor of psychology, and I felt like this lacks a bit of impact. And so that's why, you know, I did these 10 years of, um, of sort of change management, project management, mostly mm-hmm. in a technology-driven business services environment, but then I realized... Um, um, I won't say I had an epiphany because it's always, you know, uh, easy in hindsight, but I guess it became more present, this feeling of, you know, all these kind of change that we do, all kind of, you know, this all structure on those processes and all that, what's what's the actual impact on those Mm -hmm. behaviors? And I felt like, hmm, uh, maybe I want to go back to uh, what I liked about psychology and economics. And then at that time, randomly discovered the whole field of behavioral science or behavioral economics. And I felt like, ah, that's exactly what I want to do. And so that's why... 2014, I did a master's at the LSE, as you mentioned, and since then been been redirecting my career and now really happy to have the role that I have in, in the Valtis work and just to do what I like. Yeah, so that's a bit about a bit, bit of a summary there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I guess um, you will have, it's fascinating to you, you will have had your your big and, and full um, change management toolbox, but yet you realized, you know, something you know, is missing or some of the tools don't do the job in terms of, um, you know, changing behavior, changing an organization. And I'm really looking forward to hear a little bit more on that. So let's dive into the behavioral science topic. Maybe you can explain, you know, what's the essential idea or the assumption behind behavioral science? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. And I guess in that question, you probably already have a um, a premise there that I think is important to um, uh, come back to because you've said uh, assumption around behavioral science very yeah. much, very much so. And that's what I liked about the science is the fact that it is an experimental science. Yeah. And so um, hopefully this is not a theory nor uh, requires too many assumption and that the whole point is just to try to understand, you know, what drives um, people's behavior? I'll put it very simply, why people do the thing that they do, mm-hmm. right? What influenced it? And to some extent, how can it be changed? Um, and, and the way scientists, uh, social scientists have been going on for decades is about, you know, running experiments, mm-hmm. either natural experiments or artificial experiment and try to put people into similar people into different situation, change something in the environment and see how they behave and observe. And so this isn't hopefully so much about assuming, but just kind of saying, hey, you know, if we change that thing, if we play that kind of music in this store, people tend to buy more French wine if we try to whatever. And then you just go report back. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's that's the essence. And 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 essentially So it's ultimately yeah. about looking at a changed behavior. So, so, so it's really, you look in your experiment only, okay, what's the outcome? Is there a, yeah. a measurable change in yeah. behavior? That's all you're and that's Yes, and, and that's very much coming back to your initial comments and not the question, but the comment you had about the change management toolbox. The shortcomings of... of a, yeah, of, yeah. And, and so, you know, of course, I think change management toolbox, there's so many of them and they're all great. It's just that how they are being used, I guess, mostly. But that being said... Some of the, and, and I don't want to make any blanket statements about change management, but I guess sometimes some of the thing that, that's missing is this actual, or maybe not enough emphasis about the behaviors. Because mm-hmm. if there's something that we've learned from the decade of social science around here is that we're very, very poor witness of our own behaviors. And so it's not so much about changing people's minds, which is what a lot of change management strategy tries to 
you know, start with why, mm-hmm. you know, what's in it for me. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's important, but that's not sufficient. You know, it's not about changing the mind and then you change the behavior. It's about changing, you know, what's those forces in the environment and the context that drives this behavior. And so that's where sometimes change management kind of, kind of likes because we try to think about what do people think? How do okay. we get them to think differently? We are interested from a behavioral science perspective into what people think only insofar that explains what they do and not a lot of what we think necessarily explain what we do, which is counterintuitive. But that's sort of part of the answer, I guess, there, if that makes sense. Interesting. So you, what, what you're um, alluding to is this big gap between what people say they do and what they actually do. Um, this whole notion of we are not so rational as we think we are as humans. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, that, that's correct. And I think it's very important here to point out that is there's nothing intentional or conscious. Um, so it's not that people are kind of lying about themselves and, you know, no, we, 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 we do try to explain the behavior to the best of our abilities in terms of how we can explain them. Um, and there's, there's another thing there that I also try to refrain from is, is the whole sort of behavioral economics kind of idea about irrationality or rationality, right? Because mm-hmm. the idea, and, you know, it's been very trendy when we say people are not rational, we have to understand where, the, and, I'm, and I, we're going to get a bit of a deep dive there and we'll come back to more practical questions, but I think that's quite important because there's a whole debate around rationality there, you know, We all feel very rational, and I think we are. It's just, it depends by which standard do we define rationality. And when behavioral scientists have been saying and repeated by the press in the last few decades about how irrational we are, that's versus who we are described as, you know, a homo economicus mm-hmm. from the economics theory. So we talk about economic theory rationality. We don't talk about everyday rationality. Okay. So if you look at what, that definition of rationality from economics, we're not rational. But if you look at... If you look at it from a evolutionary biology or microbiology, then we're extremely rational. So I think it's just, we have to be in mind that when we say we're irrational, that is in reference to how economics, economists have defined rationality, not just in general versus biology, which is really important. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's really important. And the other notion that you had, which I want to kind of quickly refer to, is what I found interesting that you're saying well, yes, kind of knowledge is important, mindset is important, but if I understand you right, you as behavior scientists take also more the context, the wider system in which the, the individual operates into, into consideration and ask, okay, what are the kind of the, I don't know, the, 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 the system conditions that maybe prevents the person to do a behavior that's that's requested absolutely and then when you think about it um and i'll use rational in a bit of a weird way because usually when we say rational we have these implicit assumption that is conscious but if you remove that it is the rational thing to do for us because yes we can do what we think we should do but we certainly have to take into account the cues around us as, as, as individuals, not necessarily consciously, which is what are the other people doing really? Yeah. That seems to be important to help us understand whether it is the right thing to do. We don't do that consciously, but we do that. We pick those cues. Um, what are our implicit goals there? That certainly must be important into telling us what we have to do. So it is very rational for us as animals yeah. to take all those cues together. It's just a very small portion of those cues are accessible by your sort of more developed brain. The rest is kind of managed 
handled, dealt with by this sort of, you know, emotional kind of limbic system, whatever, I'm not a neuroscientist kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See yeah. what makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Let's look a little bit closer in your daily work. I think it's really fascinating. You're a head of behavioral and data science um, at Novartis, huge company with how many people you have? Um, more than 100,000 people across the globe. Yeah. More than 100,000. Wow. So what's the behavioral change you're trying to achieve there? Uh, that's a very, very broad question. And I'll, I'll probably <laughs> give a disappointingly narrow answer to that. Yeah. Uh, but, but essentially what's important to clarify is my responsibility really sits in what we call the ethics, risk and compliance department. And so that's where I'm responsible for a behavioral and data science. And you can argue it's a large chunk because what is not related to ethics to stay But I think that that's a great positioning because then our, our objective from a behavioral change perspective, and I'll cite that in a very, very broad way, and you obviously we have to break it down there, but it's how do we help people in a way uh, be their best ethical selves? How do we help embed or maybe another verb is unlock, mm-hmm. promote, ethical behavior across the organization. So once we've said that is, okay, what, how? (laughs) But that's very much the broad objective that we have. And we do that through many, many ways. So that's a very broad remit. And and I'm happy to talk about the kind of ways we're trying to make a dent into that. It's a slow burn, right? It's a long haul. It's not a a tactical problem, but that that is essentially the goal of the team. And, And just to say, um, because that might have raised some um, eyebrows or questions as to why we combine behavioral and data science yeah. together as well, right? So yeah. it's just two things. Well, essentially, it is the same thing. Making sure that for whatever we do, we have the right facts. And because we're such a large organization, we have lots of facts and we have yeah. lots of data. So we need, we need techniques from data science to make sense of these extremely large data sets. Wow. And it cannot just be, you know, inferential stats. We need to use like more advanced algorithm and that. But essentially the science behind is social science. Data science is just the tactical science to use to make sense of those uh, behaviors. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, tell us a little bit about your kind of organization in terms of, I mean, it sounds like as if you have a very diverse group of people also in your group. So tell us a little bit about people's background and the size of your, of, of your team. Yeah, sure. So, uh, uh, yeah, we, we're a fairly small team. I mean, by... Let's put it this way, by copyright standards, of course, by sort of behavioral and data science standard, we're fairly large, especially from a behavioral science standard. I don't know a lot of organization with, uh, with actually full-time behavioral scientists, so I feel very lucky from that side. So we're about, uh, you know, I guess, if I count sort of the sort of full-time equivalent, irrespective of their, irrespective of their um, if you want, uh, nature of the contract, we're about 20 people. Wow. Working full-time. And that ranged from maybe the more sort of technology partners to uh, data scientists, to automation experts, process experts, but of course as well, the behavioral scientists. So I've got about four full-time behavioral scientists, which is amazing. And most of them come, and most of those people in, in the team then comes always from a bit of a, not necessarily an ethics background, but a risk background, you know? So it's the data that we do is also about You know, you can look at the ethics problem as a risk problem. So either, you know, the profile are coming from banking, you know, this is where you have a bit Mm -hmm. of a risk uh, sort of lens as well, or, you know, consulting or uh, audits uh, or compliance themselves. So that's a bit of the mix there. And um, although we have a couple of PhDs, mostly it's people that have master's and a bit of a corporate experience as well. So we keep it real there in terms of, uh, yeah, yeah, not getting lost into hair splitting about uh, stuff. (laughs) 
<laughs> so tell me, how old is your organization? Did you set it up? And tell us a little bit about like how do you establish your brand and in terms of you know the value add that you yeah. as a department provide to the business. Yeah, as you guess, it's been a very it has been a very iterative process, and it all starts with somebody trusting and believing that there's value in behavioral science of my boss, and that's how it started. I got I got myself. Um, hired as a contractor first, wow. very recently. It was September 2019. To just set as, it all up? No, no, absolutely not. It was okay. just, and and I'll tell you how it started. It started around the code of ethics. They had an old code of conduct, Novartis, and they realized they wanted to move to something a bit different, something a bit more impactful. Um, and one of the things they had as an idea is to say, we want to move away from the rules. We want to move away, we want to move to principle and they had also this sense of leveraging this sort of intrinsic motivation of people to do the right thing, you know. Um, and then they heard about behavioral science and they had a beautiful report from one of the big four about how you can use behavioral science to drive integrity and ethics, but they weren't sure about what to do with this. And so I just got pulled in uh, randomly, I'd say almost, um, through my experience and my connections as a, a contractor for, I think initially, was it like six months? Just like, hey, help us out operationalizing the whole behavioral science in the context of the code of ethics. That's where okay. it all started. And then from there, you know, we we did, we didn't, I guess we did a fairly good job and then we, opportunities arised and I got hired as the head of behavioral science in September 2020. And then we merged what was the analytics team with the behavioral science team uh, February last year. Um, so it's a recent team, it's a young team, uh, but I'm really happy, you know, that we have the whole capability to have an impact this year. Um, but yeah, really, really lucky to have the sponsors in the organization, people that believe in that and that's how you, you make it happen. Right. Um, wow. Yeah. Sounds like a really, um, like, um, success story and, um, congratulations um, for that. How would you say is the understanding of the organization, uh, on that rather new topic? Like, does the organization get what you guys doing? I think, and, and I guess it, it, it all depends by what we mean exactly by organization, yeah. you know, is that the whole of Novartis? Can I be sure that the more than 100,000 people now? Do I get a sense that within the leadership of Novartis as a whole, not just my department? So, you know, think about the top 100 leaders also. Yeah, they get it. Okay. And, and actually, surprisingly, even for myself, behavioral science is fairly recognized mm. and is, is as a competency and a hot topic, not just for ethics, risk, and compliance, Because it's quite rare to have behavioral scientists in a department run originally by lawyers. Yeah. But it's very common in marketing. It's fairly common in brand. It's, and so, so it's it's out there. There's a lot of, you know, it's bubbling up. As for the organization, as in my direct organization, which is the department I'm working with, which is the ethics, risk, and compliance department, we're about 500 people. Um, yeah, there's a good sense. And, and by my managers directly, there's a good sense of what, what that is and what it does. And so people get it. Which is great, and there's a huge appetite. Wow! And uh, yeah, that's great. And now, give us a little bit of flavor about you know the kind of projects, the kind of experiments, the kind of challenges you and your team are working on. Yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, there's there's many things that we do, but I guess to to stick on the maybe more ethics, behavioral science kind of aspect of of what we do. There's I can cite one of the things that has become sort of a core pillar of our strategy and the core way of 
uh, delivering this this priority of building trust with society, as we've um, you know as the CEO has, has set out, is and it's very topical because it's something we'll launch again next Thursday. So basically, we've designed. Well, let me take a step back. So basically, around the code of ethics, we mm-hmm. there's two things that I've said when I kind of started, and, and a bit provocatively on purpose. One of them was. Well, let's kind of recognize the impact the code of ethics as a policy document will have on behaviors. If you just do that by itself, mm-hmm. and the answer is, I'm going to gesture in the video so the audience will not see, is not much. Yeah, uh, zero. So that, you that's, that's one. So it is not to say that it's useless. It is absolutely yeah. useful only if we also adjust the context so that the clarity of expectation is also supported by the environment and the other cues as we've discussed that people will see. So that's mm-hmm. one thing that we've mm-hmm. said. The other thing was, well, if we invest all this time to do a code of ethics, if we invest all this attention, or we spend all this, or we pay, as we say in English, we pay, you know, it costs us mm-hmm. all this attention on ethics, on the code of ethics, we have a duty to be serious about measuring whether we have an impact. Mm-hmm. And guess what? We can measure how we're doing on ethics. And so to come back to your question, that's one of the key things that we've done, which sort of very few companies are actually doing very seriously, is we not had a compliance survey. We've designed sort of a 50-question, science-based, extensive ethics survey to measure a sense of not only whether people think about ethics, but also whether we have the right thing in the environment to make sure that they behave ethically. And some of the questions have arguably seem to have nothing to do with ethics. We talk about stuff such as trust. We talk about stuff such as, you know, work-life balance. We talk about stuff such as, you know, we look at, do we have the things in place all across the globe so that people will be more likely to do the right thing? Okay, right? so it's not only it's not only about testing knowledge. No. It's about also including other influencing factors. Exactly. And then the good thing is that we had a pilot 2020. We had the blessing from the CEO and the what we call the Trust and Reputation Committee, which is the part of the board that looks at that, to run a global survey. Mm-hmm. We send that to 150,000 people. Wow. All the Novartis associates, but also externals. Okay. Mind you, a 52-question survey. So you have to you have to convince people that it's worthy of 52 questions. What was you know your, that? What you've was walked your in, return rate there? You've, 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 exactly, you've walked in comes for. You know, the survey thing is difficult yes. sometimes. And so uh, I'll come to your question. So basically, we run that in January 2021, and we had uh, a total, if you look at complete and partial answers, 50,000 answers from more than 100 countries because we translated the survey in 16 languages. Wow. Sheesh from a social science perspective. I mean, if you're a social scientist, you get that data, you're like, oh my God, this is so interesting. Wow. What's even more exciting is that we're running the survey again this year to complete the baseline. So we have another data point. We can have a longitudinal view of how things are evolving. We've improved the survey. It's not just about perceptions and psychological construct that matter, but we ask questions as well around what people have seen in the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. Have they seen some stuff they think is unethical? What kind of category? How did the manager react? How did they make them feel? So it's an invaluable set of insights that, that we have. And I can talk about this because, you know, you might have seen the video on LinkedIn. We talked about that publicly as well. Yes. And, and it's a good, um, you know, it's something that we get recognized for. So I think if there's one thing, give you a flavor of what we do, that one is definitely one of the impactful things we do because it, it informs a whole raft of things, not just for our department, but for HR, for all sort of other things. So I'm super happy. And again, glad that the this time sort of the executive committee members are really supporting and 
you know, are really serious about that. Let's yeah. remember, yeah. it's easy to do a survey, but as soon as you do a survey, you open up for being accountable for that. So that's the real investment that we make. It's not running a survey, it's holding ourselves accountable for what we Absolutely. measure. Absolutely. So be mindful what you ask, no? what it, you ask, exactly. because you, need, you might need to react. Exactly. You know, I was really, when we did have our kind of initial kind of pre-talk, I was impressed by how holistically you you see this topic and how broad you involve other topics when you analyze, you know, this um, ethical behavior. And you mentioned one study project that, that you also do with um, Amy Edmonds that many of our listeners might know because she's the mother of, of um, psychological Jeez, safety. Geez. You know, maybe you can quickly refer on that, you know, the importance of this feeling of psychological safety in compliance or ethical and, you know, in yep. the influence sector on compliance and ethical behavior, because that impressed me really. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's one of the exciting things, exciting I said ex exciting, like exotic as well, I guess. Maybe it's both. Um, it is one of the exciting things as well that, again, coming back to this idea of luck, working in the Valtis, because you, you have access then to a whole lot of really smart people, mm -hmm. uh, recognized people, and one of them is, is Amy Edmondson. So we, we did work with her initially in the context of the design of the survey that we did in 2021 because we, we wanted to measure psychological safety properly using mm -hmm. the six-point scale that she, were, she has developed. Mm -hmm. And so we had adjusted the scale, actually. We replaced one of the questions. We dropped one of the questions. So we, we've done some research with her on, on that front. And then once we had the results uh, about, you know, a measurement about the level of psychological safety for 50,000 people across 100 countries, well, it becomes interesting to say, okay, what does it do? And so naturally, then we, we continue to work with her to say, okay, what can we say? And again, this is not causation because we have a cross-sectional survey. Maybe it's different this year because we have another data point, but so far it was like cross-sectional surveys data. So let's say that we can talk about association, not causality. But then we wanted to see, okay, that level of psychological safety people have in the organization, how does this relate to outcomes that are not necessarily linked to performance? Because mm -hmm. we hear a lot of that. Certainly when sure. I go to LinkedIn, my feed is, uh, maybe that's because it's an echo chamber, but my we feed is We are in like, the bubble. We are in the we same are in bubble. this beautiful bubble, yeah. but I can see, you know, studies, psychological safety, project Aristotle and the Google, thing, yeah. and that's the single most important factor that drives performance. We're interested not in performance only. We're interested whether psychological safety has anything to do with ethical outcomes or ethical behavior. And yes, we found something, and this is where our social scientists in the team were so excited. It makes sense intuitively, but it's one thing to know that, it's the other to see that coming through the data. And I can talk through that. It's the fact that, um, and, and it's, sorry, I'm going on many, many tangents. I wanted to say that I like these insights because it also reflects as to why you want to have a complex measurement system for what you're doing. And here's the, here's the insight. The first thing we found was, okay, Psychological safety is beautifully associated, uh, correlated mm -hmm. with um, the likelihoods in the survey that we have that people have to report what they've considered an unethical behavior in ways that is useful for the organization. Mm -hmm. The more safe they felt, okay. the more likely we have to get and so that people said, I talked to HR, I talked to my manager, I raised the case I raised the speak-up case. The less safe people were, the more likely we had them answers in the survey, the questions such as, I talked to family and friends. 
Mm-hmm. I kept it for myself. Mm-hmm. Beautiful okay. graph from 7 out of 10 psychological safety to 4 out of 10 psychological safety. Huge variation there. Really strongly associated. Makes fully sense. Great. Superb. We've got the answer to speak up. We just have to increase psychological safety. It's easy one. Easy. It's, you know, done. Yeah. But, and you know that's coming. <laughs> Here's the big but, <laughs> as one of my friends used to say. And the but is the following. When we also look at how psychological safety or how levels of psychological safety is associated with how, let's put it this way, toxic an environment is, and by that, the way we define that in a survey is how many times in the last 12 months somebody has said he or she has perceived unethical behavior from zero to seven or plus mm-hmm. unethical behavior. So the more unethical behavior people were perceiving in the previous 12 months, the less safe they felt. Mm-hmm. And that association was even stronger to the association that relates psychological safety to the speak-up mechanism. So essentially, what does it say? It says where you need people to speak up the most, mm-hmm. you will get them to speak up the least. Because in an environment where people have seen a lot of unethical behavior, they don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And thus, they don't raise their voices. So it's mm-hmm. really a catch-22, it's a chicken and egg. Where you want people to be psychologically safe, they are not. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know the sense of the direction of causality here, mm-hmm. right? We can't say for sure, but we can have a reasonable enough assumption that is to help people speak up in an environment that are toxic, we're not going to be able to do that by just saying, please feel safe, mm-hmm. speak up, because they don't feel safe in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it's about the rest of the things that matters, the sense of fairness, Trust, manage our behavior and all that. I just want to say the the, the role of leaders or leadership, I guess it's critical also for the sense of safety, no? It is is critical. And and I'll be brief there because I take a long time for my answers. Um, That's the other thing that we found in the survey uh, to talk about that particular piece of work is that it's not just a tone from the top. It's the managers deeper into the organization that shape Mm. a lot of uh, their team's behavior And one of the focus for this year, without saying too much, will be around ethical leadership. Um, Defined as in, it's not enough for leaders to walk the talk about the values. It's not enough for leaders to be example about, you know, integrity and ethics. Mm -hmm. That's part of their role. Mm -hmm. But sometimes leaders think, well, I'm ethical. I set the example of about what is the right thing to do, so I'm doing my job. Mm -hmm. No. Ethical leader, they have to actually shape the environment for their teams to for them to be able to raise concerns and and discuss and make the space for ethical conversations. So it's just not enough to be ethical as a leader. You have to have some steps you have to do as part of your role mm. to make sure that happens. And that's what we want to focus on. What our managers have to actively do beyond being ethical themselves, so that we can consider them as ethical leaders, um, is the key distinction that we're making. And the data that from the server that shows that. Mm, mm. That makes sense. It's tricky. I mean, it's tricky to achieve compliant behavior and things around compliance or, yep. you know, ethical behavior or even data security are also these yep. kind of topics where, you know, they know it's important, but at the same time, they also don't want to be bothered about that yep. Um, yep. due to various reasons. I assume they might know I know it all or they have heard too much in the organization yep. and nothing harmful happened yet. Yep. So they yep. think, well, we seem to be safe. You know, what's your tip as an expert? Like, you know, what what's the best approach to address that? Is it better to highlight, you know, in terms of communication, highlight 
the risks in terms of if you're not doing that? Or is it better to to highlight, you know, the benefits, the 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 the, the, the positive sides if, if people do that? What's your your view? Yeah. And, and and as a behavioral scientist, of course, the thing that I'll say that's gonna get me out of jail is, well, context matter. <laughs> <laughs> so so it does matter. But that being said, that it all depends into what's the situation at hand for okay. what's the uncompliant situation at hand. Uh, I'll give you an example as to why it matters into and then why it's very difficult to make blanket statements such as you got to highlight the benefit rather than the risk or you want to motivate people rather than punish them. Uh, there's some you know, large truth about the kind of motivation. There's a set of very famous studies and, and Robert Cialdini is, you know, people who know a bit about social science is one of the, you know, godfather of behavioral science and one of the uh, great uh, uh, psychologies there has done a lot of studies around sort of these kind of social norms mm. uh, around, you know, how do we get people to actually comply to some kind of behaviors. And actually the answer in those experiments were about, well, how you communicate about those norms or those benefits depends about what is the situation at hand. And I'll, so for, for an example, so, you know, we know, um, I think, I don't know exactly the date, but um, we have a tendency when we want to, um, you know, have people um, help us solve a given problem mm-hmm. to actually tell them how big the problem is. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully they'll get it. They'll think about it. Oh yeah, that's a big problem. So I'm going to change. So there's two things happening here in terms of social norm. One of them is called the injunctive norm, which is what we ought to do. Mm-hmm. The other is called the descriptive norm, which is what we see other people doing. And so if you have a problem, and I think I'm not sure, but I think that was one of the uh, studies. It was a natural experiment when you know, in terms of sort of road security, we had large campaigns that I don't remember the country about how it is important to wear your seatbelt. Yeah. Right. Some of the marketeers or some of the comms people were like, oh, we just have to tell people how many accidents and how many deaths and how nobody wears a seatbelt. Yeah. It's a big problem. So, you know, then they'll get it and they'll, you know, kind of wear the seatbelt. What happened after those communication, the rate of non-seatbelt related accident injury went up because what people saw is nobody wear their seatbelt. It's a big problem. Thus, wear your seatbelt. They forget the latter stage. They just remember nobody is wearing their seatbelt. Mm. And it's like, oh, it must be the right thing to do then. I'm going to stop marrying mine if nobody does this. Um, wow. Think about it in an, another example, which is something that my previous company, Influence at Work, worked on in the context of uh, uh, the NHS in the UK. They wanted to see how big and help solve the problem of non-attendance to appointments, medical appointments. So people mm-hmm. don't go to their appointments. And so the default the default sort of uh, strategy is to say, well, we're going we're gonna to put posters in the waiting rooms. And sometimes you see them like about how miss, missed appointments cost billions or millions of you know, pounds a year and how about we could save so many people from some things about that, right? And, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, first of all, because who sees those posters? Well, the one that go to their appointments. Because <laughs> the one that don't go to the appointment, they don't see the post there. So first of all, you got a problem of avoidance there. Yeah. And what does he do? Then he does, oh, a lot of people seem to be missing their appointments. So maybe next time, and he's unconscious, right? Maybe yeah. it's it's okay, it's acceptable. It's the norm around here. And so and so one of the way to come to how do you solve that problem, one of the interventions that was designed is to say, okay, forget the posters, get, get rid of them. The thing you do is that when somebody comes, and I guess it was true in the pre-pandemic world, so in that example has probably aged a little bit, but assume pre-pandemic people go to counters and make appointments, right? Mm-hmm. So when somebody makes an appointment, the only change in the process there was instead of 
the secretary writing the appointment date on a little card and giving that to uh, the patient, the patient will take a, a card, take up a pen, and have himself or herself write the date of the appointment on the paper and have the secretary repeat the date. And that mere fact reduced, I don't remember the percentage, but drastically the number of people not showing up just because they had some kind of a almost public commitment to that, mm-hmm. saying, okay, that's the date where I'm going to be. I'm going to write it down. I'm involved in that process. I'll remember for many reasons. So that's, you know, essentially if you abstract then the, the solution, that's just a very, very small example. If you want people to do things, make it easy for them to do the things that they have to do. That's, you know, walk on default. What's the default okay. behavior? What's the, you know, and, and, and so that's one. And also make sure you don't shoot yourself in the foot. And, you know, by telling people you want them to do this, but maybe not adjusting some bits of the context that actually send different cues. Mm-hmm. And so to even abstract a bit more than that, if you want people to do the thing, behavioral change really is, is very much like if you want rocket launch. Mm-hmm. So it's not rocket science, but it's like a rocket launch. And it's the fact that if you want to launch a rocket, meaning you, if you want to drive a behavior, Yes, it's about the amount of fuel you put in the rocket. That's the motivation. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the thinking. I want people to want to do this. How do I convince them that's the right thing to do? That's the fuel you put into the rocket. But no matter how much fuel you put into the rocket, if there's too much friction, mm-hmm. it's not going to go up. The only thing you do by adding fuel is you add tension into the system. Mm-hmm. And that's what sometimes mm-hmm. comes expelled do by driving attention of things, they just add more tension into the system where it's about removing the blocker, what gets in the way. And that's how you achieve change. Remove the stuff that blocks rather than that, the promoting force. It's about the blocking forces, which is counterintuitive. Ah, interesting, because putting just more tension in the system just blocks people and make this yeah. paralysis that they don't yeah. act at all. Be- behavior is like, and I think Kahneman was saying that, so I've not invented this, um, Kahneman is saying like behavior is like an equilibrium of like promoting forces and restraining forces. So if you see that this way, by adding more promoting forces, what you do is you compress the spring on the other hand, yeah. right? And you increase the level of tension. And so it's very difficult for us in large organization to do less, Yeah, you know? And yeah. for us as animals, we like the additive nature of doing more. But sometimes a success comes from doing something less, removing something from the system, right? It's really Instead interesting. Of Right, so that's a big shift from which um, is not intuitively satisfying for us as, as human beings, right? We like to see more stuff. We can see that. We can visualize the impact. But sometimes it's about removing things, which is not as satisfying. You know, you're not going to go to the CEO and say, I've got to have a massive success with that project. We did not do this. Or we stopped yeah. doing this. And it's like, yeah. what? <laughs> yes, you get two million for that next year. No, you know, that doesn't work this way. <laughs> yeah, no, fascinating. And I think we close a loop here to the to the to our intro where you mentioned about, you know, your background in, in change management yeah. and, and, and your big toolbox that you had then. With what you know now about behavior science, and, you know, you alluded a little bit on yeah. that already, but maybe like what would be the one or two things that you did in the past that were essential element of your toolbox that now with your behavior science knowledge, like you know you wouldn't do anymore because it doesn't work? Very, it's a very good question. It's not an easy one. So I guess maybe I'll, uh, to make it easier for me to answer, I might extend the question into the things that I might have done myself versus the things where, you know, that have been part of, right? Okay. And witnessed as part of those change programs. So I'm going to try to answer the question. It might not answer it fully. So I'm going to be like the politician. Very good question. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think 
the, the one thing that maybe I, I would want people to take away when it comes to that is beware of the sense of certainty and comfort we might have by having, you know, change strategy that are more based on, you know, sort of the why and motivate people and explain them. Whereas most of the time, if it feels too easy, if your strategy feels robust, that's probably the wrong strategy, right? If you feel comfortable with your strategy, that's probably the wrong one in terms of change management, right? If you have, you think you've got the answer, you think you've got a good change management plan, that's probably a wrong change management yeah. plan, right? <laughs> well, and that's, 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 a, that's, that, a, that's enough of a tip, I guess. Yeah, so, and yeah. I think the sense of confidence we get from them from having those excel and the stakeholders, and let's be careful it doesn't, you know, get us away. And that's something that, to link back to the ethics survey, what we have sometime in compliance departments, to talk about the, the sort of the field I mean, though, is with all the policies that we have, with all those kind of controls, we feel like we're in control. You know, we feel like we're good, we're safe. Mm-hmm. And actually what we do with the ethics survey to say to remove all of that and to say, hey, no, there's a huge complexity here. So instead of looking at a wrong map, mm-hmm. we're not replacing it by another map. We're just saying, you know, get your head up the GPS in your car and look through the window. Oh, snap, I'm in the woods. I'm not exactly sure which path. We're going to try this path. And that's the iterative nature of change management. So if you're a change management working in a large organization, beware as soon as you feel a bit too comfortable with your strategy. That probably means you're way too comfortable, actually, compared to what you should be. And, 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 and I think as change management, we should always have this sort of try things out approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So only that, that that's helps. My, yeah. Absolutely. And that's my takeaway, my personal takeaway from me, for me, with what I'm hearing is also this notion of, you know, exactly pilot and test things, you know, in smaller sizes before you do big rollouts and also work more with data. Like I, I think, you know, with the programs that I, you know, I've experienced also, you know, we are very good in setting up pro, you know, plans, but, you know, in, in the, in this area of change management, when it comes to tracking results, tracking real impacts, we are less, you know, diligent. And I think, you know, learning from behavior science means also, you know, learning to to thoroughly generate data, read data and and, and improve your strategy. Uh, absolutely. And then finally, uh, from a change management perspective, it's okay to create demand. Mm-hmm. It's okay not to satisfy it with massive global supply right away. You can create demand. You can focus with a bunch of people that are more likely to work with you. And it's okay if other people say, hey, I'd like to have this as well, right? Because sometimes mm-hmm. in change management plans, we like to make sure it's fair and everybody's getting the same. No, it's okay. You can create that little demand. You can create, you can play with the scarcity there about involving some people, but maybe not the others right away. And they'll make it more likely for them to join by themselves. And so there's there's many things we can do. And I'm, but I'm sure that would be a, a whole other podcast. Absolutely. Uh, there. Super interesting, Antoine. Well, when we talk about the, the art of manipulating um, human behavior, one obviously has to speak also about um, ethics. Yeah. Um, so how do you decide in your work, you know, what kind of experiments, what kind of things are possible and what are, what, you know, not possible? What should you, you should do? That, that's a very, very important point. Um, it is important for the field of behavioral science as it is uh, getting mainstream and more people are jumping on a bandwagon and that we claim to have the impact we're having. With that impact comes responsibility and ethical responsibility. It is important, especially for us as a pharma industry, mm-hmm. uh, as a player in the pharma industry, where 
Um, we know uh, reputation is something we have to keep building. And so that's something I'm really, I voice within the organization. And that's something we're working on, not just for ethics, risk, and compliance. But the key question is your question. What kind of framework and guardrails and governance can we put in place as the first sort of global behavioral science team so that we as an organization before the industry and before, when I say industry, it could be the behavioral science industry or the pharma industry. How do we make sure that we have those guardrails in place so that what we do is in the interest of, as far as we're concerned, you know, patient, society, right? And not just ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yes, there's an excitement. Yes, there's appetite to use behavioral science, but we need to be extremely careful at this early stage so that we use that for the benefit of society so that we don't use that for the benefit of the industry itself. And so to answer more precisely your question, we're, so we're developing that framework, um, which we would want to, uh, and let's see it happens, but publicly sort of talk about it as well, you know, the ethical use of behavioral science. Right. Mm-hmm. We've, we've, we've taken some public position about this around uh, different topics. We've taken public position about the ethical use of data science or data. And so I think we want to do something similar uh, potentially for behavioral science. Um, for now, I think it has to do with a couple of things, a couple of guardrails. And one of them is the it's always a mixture of what's ethical is in the what and the how. Mm-hmm. Nothing, you know, good old matrix there, nothing mm-hmm. crazy. But it's true. Um, it's about the how, which is, I guess, easier most of the time to control. How do you do your experiment? And in there, you have things such as the level of transparency. Mm-hmm. If you were to tell people that you're experimenting with that, would it be comfortable? You know, can you actually share exactly with well, this is what I'm doing? And so one of the guardrails is that we want we always, whenever we do something, we're extremely transparent about what we do. Okay. Right? And it doesn't take away the effect. There's not some kind of magic stuff that needs to be hidden from people. That's right. the beauty of behavioral science. We can be as open as we want, it still works. That's really important. So that's the transparency is there. And then, of course, there's, you know, sort of scientific integrity questions to make sure that we can say the things that we want to say about the effect and all that. And there's many other things. More importantly, and more difficult is the what. Mm -hmm. Why are we doing this? What's the intent? And which interest does it benefit? We do a lot of work with HR. Does it benefit the interest of the employee? Um, of the organization. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes there might be tension. And so this is where we want to make sure that the way we use behavioral science, there's no dilemma there. Mm -hmm. It benefits the people it's supposed to benefit equally. And that is extremely important because I do think, and I'm passionate about that, and that's a focus for this year, we are as behavioral scientists and, you know, the industry is bubbling up at a pivotal time where it's getting more and more mainstream. And you and me were in the agribusiness before. And if you remember, I'll draw a parallel that might resonate with you, is if you remember back in the, and I don't know the date exactly, I might say something stupid, but I think 80s, 70s, 90s, at the beginning of when we talked about GMO, right? Mm -hmm. At the beginning, it was like fairly positive talk. You know, we're going to have food with more nutrients, we're going to reduce the need for wider GMO grades. But then what happened, a certain player came in, which we know, and they've used the benefit of this powerful technology, powerful approach, Instead of using that for the benefit of the consumer or society, they've used that for the benefit of the industry itself. Mm-hmm. And we know something from behavioral science is that the perception of the risk from people is not in absolute term. It is commensurate to the perception of the benefits they have. Mm-hmm. And because the GMO suddenly stopped having any benefit for the end consumer, because it was for the, internet, in the interest mostly of the industry, mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. then the risk, the perception of risk skyrocketed. Right? Mm-hmm. You take your car every day, it's a huge risk, 
But we don't perceive that as very risky because it has huge benefits for us. We can travel along. If there's something that we can use that has no benefit for us, then we think it's much more risky or less desirable. And it's the same for behavioral science. How do we use that? Is it to benefit society in general or is that mm-hmm. to benefit a specific set of players? Because that will define whether we have a mandate and whether and how it is perceived. And so we need, in conclusion, to be extremely careful not to dig our own reputational hole there when it comes to behavioral science, especially in the pharma industry as well. Really interesting. Really interesting. Super fascinating. And um, yeah, um, and we wish you all the best for, for, for all those challenges. For anybody who wants to learn more about um, this topic, is there any book, podcast uh, that you can especially recommend? Yeah, no, there's, there's, there's so many, so many, um, I think, um, things, um, but I won't do the political answer. I'll, 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 I'll give you an answer there uh, because I think it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's the one that you believe is the right one and it's a safe one as well because it's, it's an agreed answer. And I think <laughs> if there's, it's not an easy book, but, you know, one of my favorite books, if there's one book, I think, for those who are motivated to learn sort of fundamentals about behavioral science or psychology or, you know, how we think and what we do um, is uh, Daniel Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, as you know, Daniel Kahneman's is, yeah, the classic. And I think that start there. The foundation. The foundation. Right. Um, but it, it's good because it's the right balance. It's not a pop science book. It's not a book, it's not a textbook neither for, you know, people who study yeah. that. It's, it, it reaches for me the right balance and fundamental ideas there. And I know that some of the studies in the book did not replicate on the priming studies, but okay. Um, I think the, 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 the larger points of the book uh, hold true and it's a great place to start. And that's the book I still recommend to people when they say, I'm serious about learning a bit more. Well, just uh, read that. And of course, listen to this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> exactly. Um, a big thing, you mentioned that also in our podcast, is the term nudging. I will not go into detail on that because I also know a little bit your perspective on that. <laughs> But a tip for our listener, what are your top three nudging t- uh, tricks you use personally, either uh, in work or at home with your kids? That's what I love about I love that question because effectively, <gasps> and, and, I, and I think without any kind of undue comparison, I think there's a question that was asked to, you know, we had a chance to see Kahneman speak in, in Paris a couple of months back for his release of the noise book. And there was a question that went into that sense. It wasn't about nudging, it's about his own tip to be, to de-bias himself and, and improve his reasoning. And I'll, I'll give a similar answer. I'm really poor. We are poor witness of our own behavior, including myself. <laughs> and so, and also because partially that's what I think about every single day when I shut off the computer I don't think about all that. I just go with the flow, mostly. Of course, sometimes I try to reflect. I've got three young kids, as you know, and sometimes I try to be tactical, but I, <laughs> I don't have the patience for that. I'm like everybody, you. I finish, <laughs> end up yelling about what they want. I want them to do and using completely the wrong techniques because it's so hard to do the right thing all the yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so no, I, I, I don't think I'm in a position there to give uh, special nudges there. Uh, try your best, be like me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Antoine, for joining us today. Sure. It was really, really fascinating. Thank It's you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Arnie. Hey there. Thank you for listening to Future Ready. Future Ready is produced by COSIN, a global community of independent communications advisors and change makers who shape healthy and thriving businesses. Find out more at wearecosin.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review or forward this show to someone who you think will love it. My today's quote at the end comes from Malcolm X. The future belongs to those who prepare for it today. In this spirit, go get future ready today. 